And so we begin in a series in Joshua, the, the promised rest as it's highlighted for us in this narrative all the way through these chapters. Joshua chapter 1 is where we begin. I'll read the first nine verses, but the sermon itself will be primarily verses 1 and 2, and as well as an overview and an examination of the various themes and structures of this book. Joshua chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 9. This is again, this is not the word of men, this is the word of the living God. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, Toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Amen. This is the word of the living and true God. It was Rhett Dotson who, in his commentary on the book of Joshua, who wrote the following promises. If you say the word once, it carries a note of excitement and even expectancy. If you say it twice, however, it suddenly begins to produce overtones of pessimism. Yeah, yeah, promises, promises, says the cynic. We have all heard it before. Promises mean very little these days, or so it seems. Politicians build their platforms and campaigns on promises that no one really expects them to keep. Every four years in America, a candidate will promise to bring about change the country needs, yet the voting public takes it all with a big grain of salt as the cynicism of the nation grows by leaps and bounds. What about you? When you not hear the words of a politician, but you hear the words of Scripture, and the words especially, the words that have been read in your hearing already this afternoon, when it comes to the very things that God says, when it comes to the promises of God, are you a cynic? Do you believe, do you truly believe that a God who says you are His people, redeemed by the work of Christ, will really bring you to the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth? It is easy, I think, at times... As one who lives in this world with you, who lives in a fallen world with you, I think it is easy at times to doubt his promises. I have, you have, we all have. 
We are, after all, fallen creatures, and we do sometimes doubt. And it would be stupid to say that we don't. However, our doubts do not affect or should not affect or change. They don't change even the promises of God. You may doubt, God's promises remain the same. You may question, God's promises don't shift, they don't change. Indeed, circumstances, as daunting as they may be, will not change what God has promised. The Lord, our Redeemer, will bring us, you and me, across the Jordan to the promised land one day. The world may fly off its axis, people may rage and foam, empires may rise and fall, but our Redeemer will accomplish that which He has promised to do in the lives and for the lives of those He came to redeem. Now as we open the book of Joshua, and we see at least in context, as this sermon is really fundamentally an introductory sermon to the entire book, It sets the the framework, the structure of the entire book, and the way in which we're going to examine it over the next number of months. As you open the book of Joshua, we note two specific things. Two rather interesting things. The first one is stated there rather plainly, almost abruptly, in the opening lines of the book. Moses is dead. God comes right out and says it to Joshua there in the opening of the text. Moses, my servant, is dead. Period. Hard stop. Done. How'd you like to be Joshua? And hear that. Well, yes, I know that. Thank you. Moses is dead. And the people of God are about to cross the Jordan River in much the same way as they crossed the Red Sea. The very, the long-awaited promise of God to Abraham is about to be accomplished. They're on the eve of it. Generations have come and gone. Circumstances have come and gone. Hard times, good times, everything in between times. All of it have come and they've gone. But Yahweh has remained faithful even in the face of stiff opposition from the world and even from his own people. So I'm going to show you this afternoon as we begin this study of this book and we begin to look at some, at least some of the introductory uh, matters related to it. I'm going to show you, I want to show you that the Lord, our Redeemer, through an introductory overview of the book of Joshua, examining the man, the book, and the message, especially as it relates to God's people and their eternal rest. I'm going to show you the Lord, our Redeemer. Then do so through an introductory overview of the book of Joshua, examining the man, the book, and the message, especially as it relates to God's people and their eternal rest. Three points as we look at this, um, as, at this introductory material. First, we'll consider the man, and then we will consider the book, and then we will consider the message. The man, the book, the message as we launch a series into what is, I hope and pray, will be very helpful for you as you pilgrim through your Christian life, even as these people were pilgriming 
through theirs. Let's first consider the man. It opens very quickly in the book. A, a man that we've met before in the Pentateuch in the first five books of Moses. We know something of this man, Joshua. We see that there after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun or the son of Noon, Moses' assistant. We have here for us the circumstances of which this book begins. Moses is dead. It's after his death, uh, something that occurred there at the end of Deuteronomy. In fact, uh, some scholars believe that the final chapter of Deuteronomy was actually penned by Joshua uh, because Moses is dead. How could he write chapter 34? But the circumstance does present itself a crisis for the people. Moses has been the leader of Israel for 40 years. Moses has been a type of redeemer for the people for 40 years. He's the one who met God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and ever since then he's been mediating on behalf of the people, waging war on behalf of the people, standing before Pharaoh, before kings, before princes, giving, thus saith the Lord, for the people. This is the man of God, in fact, arguably, the greatest figure in the Bible other than Jesus Christ. And he is dead. Put a different way, the people now see this man that they've come to trust, this man that they've come to believe, this man that they've come to follow. The, not perfectly, of course. There were hard times, there were interesting times. But the bottom line, basically, is the people followed him. Their leader is dead. And this has a potential, the potential, to destabilize the entirety of the nation. What should we do now, they might be asking. How will we ever go on? Churches suffer from this problem. A faithful minister who labors behind the pulpit and labors in the study and labors in the homes of his parishioners of the church that the Lord calls him to pastor uh, may do so for 20, 30, 40 years. But he can't do it forever. He, like you, is a creature of dust and he will die. And churches sometimes never recover. From that, I have various theories as to why that may be the case, but it should never be the case. We should indeed labor, ministers should labor to lead the people of God, even as Moses labored to lead the people of God, but always with the goal of pointing them to the Lord whom they serve. Pastors should live with this in mind daily, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. It's one of my favorite expressions, by the way, in case you're wondering. Moses, as great as he was, was not indispensable in the work of Jehovah, and no one is. Not you and not me. God's plan, his purposes for his people will not be sidetracked merely because Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead. His promises will not end merely because Moses died. No, indeed, instead, he will carry it on. He will give uh, to this man, this, this man, a, a rather daunting task. How would you like to be Joshua? Many years ago, I took the reins of a church after a man labored there for 18 years. It's difficult. 
you often feel like you're in the shadow of a person. Now, I suspect that's simply human nature. Joshua certainly felt that. A man as great as Moses, a man unlike everybody else in the Bible except for Christ, a man who stood panim ay panim, face to face with the holy God of Israel, spoke to him as a friend speaks to a friend. And he's going to lead God's people in his shadow. I don't know about you, but it sounds awfully daunting, awfully difficult. The burden must have been extremely great. How will Joshua fill this man's shoes? How can he? Very simply, he does it with the help of the Lord. Believing the promises of the Lord that he gives to him in this chapter. He continues to give to him day in and day out as he seeks to lead the people. And as Joshua maintains a frame of humility, understanding that these people do not belong to him, but they belong to the God of heaven. But there is a connection, of course, here in these opening words. God himself tells them that they're about to cross over into the land that they have been promised, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, by the way, Toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. They are about to enter this place that has been promised so long ago. And as just as Moses was the redeemer of the people from bondage, and this matter has now passed the torch to the one who would lead the people to their rest. Moses was the figure by which he freed the people from sin and misery. And Joshua is the figure by which he then brings them to the typological place of our heavenly rest. Egypt, the place of slavery, the place where each of us were at one time in our lives. Each of us lived prior to the redeeming work of Christ coming to rescue us from our sin. That now which we await, the promised land, our heavenly rest. It is the place where the people of God find their hope and promised rest. But it doesn't come easy, does it? And as we're going to see in this book, as we work our way through Joshua, we're going to see categorically the number of times in which it was difficult, the wars that would have to take place, the battles that would have to occur, even the defeats. These wars, these battles all lie ahead for the people, but it will indeed end in the later latter chapters with the people setting, settling the land of promise. You might wonder, you might even think, well, what does this book have to do with me? Why do I care? Why should I care about Joshua? I'm never going to the Middle East. I don't care about the Jordan River, and I really don't have any desire to live in Israel. And that may all be true, or not true. But the fact remains is that this book has everything to do with you, because like them, we too must fight, we must battle, we must wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil as we journey to our promised rest. It's the picture of the book, the promised rest of God given to the people of God. But that does not come without battle, without warfare. 
It comes, of course, as we are led by the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts, who has secured the victory, though we have not yet received it, a victory that we know is ours, but it doesn't come without conquest, without war, and without great struggle at times. This individual, who is he? The Lord said to Joshua, Who said? Yahweh said, he speaks. This is, as it were, the very opening lines of the book. If you note them very carefully, it is as though God himself is speaking, and he is. After the death of Moses, the son of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, and he continues to speak all the way through the end of verse 9. This is revelation par excellence. God communicating directly a creator, the creator, the one you heard about in Genesis chapter 1, who made the heavens and the earth. He's now speaking to Joshua directly to give him the mandates and the mission that is before him. And he's listening to him. We know that he does. As we continue reading in the chapter, we see that Joshua does what God told him to do, and he continued to do that all the way through the book. Yes, there were mistakes. Yes, there were sins. Yes, there were transgressions as we go. We'll see those. But by and large, he was listening. God speaks. Let every man be silent. Joshua isn't sitting here engaged in conversation. He isn't answering back. He is simply listening to the voice of Jehovah, thundering about, as it were, to him. When God speaks, a man is to listen. Now, who is this man that we're talking about? Who is this Joshua? Just give you a a really quick thumbnail sketch of this man. First, he was an assistant to Moses. He He was content in that role. He learned to serve before he was promoted to the rank of the leader of the people. A strong biblical theological, a strong application could easily come from that when it pertains to the life of the church. The one thing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs more is servants, not, not leaders. Joshua learned to serve first before he became the leader of the people. In fact, Joshua even remained a servant of Moses even after his death. Numerous examples throughout the book highlight this, that Joshua wasn't even called, that Joshua was called the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord regularly to highlight his servant mentality. I remember when I was in seminary, Men, awful, many men would clamor to preach. And you could hardly blame them. They would love to teach and give an opportunity to do the, those kinds of things. But when they were asked to clean the toilets, suddenly they were too busy. Suddenly they had other things to do. One might make the argument that they shouldn't be standing in the pulpit if they're not willing to clean the toilets. Service. 
Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Joshua served. In the words of John F. Kennedy, ask not what the church can do for you, but what you can do for the church. Second, not only was he an assistant to Moses, he was a man of war. Exodus 17, verses 9 and 13, the battle with the Amalekites, he was intimately involved in this issue. Third, he was also a man of God. He was a man of God. A man of whom the Bible speaks little to nothing of any moral failure. Now, there's one thing I appreciate about the Bible is that it does not try to hide the sins of its, of its heroes. David, the Bathsheba. Moses and the striking the rock. Adam and Eve. We could go on and on and on and on and on. Peter denying Christ. But little or nothing is said about Joshua in any relationship to any moral failure. He was a holy and righteous man and then promoted to the seat of honor. We do it backwards in the church today. We promote people to elders or deacons. Why? Because they have money or because they have a profession or because they have some practice or because they're a lawyer or doctor. Not because they're actually qualified. Not because they're actually godly and men of God. No, no. We do it the other way. At least we should. He was a man of the Lord, a servant of the Lord, and he was promoted. Fourth, he was a man called by God. A man called by God. Deuteronomy 31, verses 14 through 15, highlight this very point. Too often in the church today, we violate this very principle. Men run ahead. They wake up one morning and decide they want to be a pastor. No one's ever talked to them about it. No session or elders have ever identified any kind of gifting in them. They couldn't teach their way out of a wet paper bag, but somehow they think they're called to be a pastor. They couldn't preach if life depended on it, and so somehow they think they should be in the ministry. They call themselves to it. Here, Joshua on the eve of crossing into the very promised land and taking the reins of many, many, many people, we note how he was called by God. Men should not and do not or should not call themselves to positions of honor. Joshua certainly didn't. Men should not call themselves to the ministry, to the eldership, or even to the diaconate. My previous call, I knew an elder in the church who was only in the church for four weeks before he announced to the pastor that he, was, he wanted to be an elder. It's a good thing I wasn't the pastor because I would have just said, well, well, let's give it another 52 whatever weeks, whatever four minus whatever, how many weeks in a year? Okay. Men do not do this. God doesn't work this way. God does the work. He's the one who calls the people to serve him in this capacity. He uses means 
ordinary ones, simple ones, congregational meetings, votes, secret votes, all of these things God does. But he always accomplishes the calling he has to bring a person to the office of elder, deacon, pastor, whatever. Joshua didn't call himself. God did. And as he's called to this, he hears the information that Moses is dead and he's given a command. Go over this Jordan. Reminds you of the Red Sea experience, but more importantly, looks forward to the day when the second Joshua, the better Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, stands at the Jordan and is baptized by John the Baptist and hears the words of his father. The parallel is striking. That here at the Jordan River, he is called into full-time Christian service to labor on behalf of the people of God, to bring them into the heavenly rest, the picture of that heavenly rest that the promised land represents. Fast forward to Elijah and Elisha. There, Elijah, who had a great bounty of the Spirit of God upon him, who was now to transfer that mantle to Elisha, his predecessor, his apprentice. And Elisha says, give me a double portion of your spirit, all at the Jordan River. Fast forward to Jesus' baptism, where he takes the mantle upon himself as the Redeemer, the Redeemer prophesied of old, and he doesn't receive just merely a double portion of the Spirit, but he receives it all. And the voice from heaven speaking, this is my beloved Son of whom I am well pleased. And so he hears his command to go over this Jordan. They had to travel from the east of the Jordan to the west. The picture here is striking. From a biblical theological point of view, the whole motif, the whole theme of traveling from east to west highlights the redeeming work of God to a people and beckoning them, calling them to himself. But that is precisely what happened when he first ejected Adam and Eve from the tabernacle or from the, from the first temple, from the Garden of Eden. He removed them from west to east. And then when he called them back to himself in the construction of the tabernacle, he moved them from east to west. And here they're about to make that journey from east to west, from outside the presence of God, into the very presence of God, to the holy place, to the place in which his temple would dwell in Jerusalem, to all of it, the ultimate fulfillment being that which Christ, who is the true temple of God, would erect. In fact, all of this takes place, this event, this command, this narrative, really this divine revelation of God himself here in this opening nine verses takes place in the rough play, in, the, in, in a roughly in the same area in which the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized. I know, it's just happenstance. Coincidence. No, the Bible is like any, no other book. Divinely inspired. You piece the, the, the themes together and you put the pieces in the right place and you stand back in awe and you say, no human being could have ever come up with this. It's beautiful. 
How is it then that Joshua, who's hearing the very voice of God and recognizing the very daunting task of leading a people into the promised rest, how is he to do it? Well, he's going to pull himself up by his bootstraps, try really hard every day, and maybe he'll make it. I think that's there somewhere, maybe between verse 9 and 10 in the white spaces. No, he does it with Yahweh's presence. Verse 5 and verse 9, I will be with you. How many more times must God tell you as people, I will be with you? You hear it almost every Lord's Day in this pul- from this pulpit. You hear it time and again as you read the Bible. You hear it all the time. Do you believe it? The promise that God will be with you, do you believe it? It was comforting to Joshua to know that the same presence of Yahweh that was with Moses is now going to be with him. But not only is his presence going to be with him, then therefore also his might. We see this in chapter 3 as well as in chapter 6 and chapter 10 and the battles that will take place before the people. It is the Lord that fights for them. Not Joshua's ingenuity. Not his craftiness as a general. Not his battle plans. All of those things, as important as they are, ultimately the battle belongs to the Lord. Sure, there will be labor. But it will be Yahweh that fights for them. Well, the book itself can be highlighted, can be really broken down in this way. This is point number two if you're taking keeping score at home. The book, Preparation to Enter the Land, the first five chapters. The Conquest of the Land, chapters 6 through 12, which is really a picture of sanctification. The Settling of the Land, verses thirteen to chapters 13 to 21, which is a picture of our heavenly rest to come. And then the epilogue of the book, chapters 22 to 24, which shows the deaths of Joshua and the high priest, highly significant in the historical narrative. We'll get to that eventually. Finally, the message. Three themes to highlight for you. Three themes. Theme one, the faithfulness of God. God's gift of Canaan to Israel. This fulfills the long-awaited promise to Abraham. Through the military campaigns of the people, the promises of God would be fulfilled. And it will be for us too. It will be for you. What God says he will do, he will do it. When God says he fights for his church, he fights for his church. We are not alone in the battle. We are not alone in the struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Your faithful God will sustain you through and through, always. Second, theme two, obedience of the people. This book has repeated calls to obedience. These are not some ordinary mob of people. Who are these people? These are the covenant people who have enjoyed the covenant blessings. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. They have witnessed the presence of God. Seen his power, received his laws, heard him speak, enjoyed his worship. Now as a redeemed people. They are called to a life of obedience. You say you know the Lord this afternoon. 
You want that. I want his faithfulness. I want his promises. I want him to fight for me. I want him to defend me. I want him to take care of me. I want him to give me all that I stand in need of. I want, I want, I want, I want. God says to you, here's what I want. I want you to be faithful to me. Obey what I tell you. Be careful to do it. That's what he tells Joshua in the opening verses. Be careful to obey all that you have heard. Meditate on my law day and night. Be careful to observe it. If you do, you will have good success. You will prosper in the way. And he's not talking about money. You say you know the Lord. You say you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, slain before the foundation of the world. You say you love him. There is the simple proof. You obey him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Commandment one, commandment two, commandment three, commandment four, all ten of them. All that he speaks, all that he says, all that he directs his people to do, you will keep them out of joyful love for him. The people will indeed deviate from those things. They will suffer the consequence in loving discipline of their Lord. We too, don't we, at times deviate from the plan, deviate from the commands of God. Our love wanes because of our sin and we deviate and then the loving discipline of the Lord comes. Why? Because he loves you and does that. He sometimes does it through the elders of the church. Sometimes he does it through a sermon that is preached. Sometimes he does it through a Sunday school class that is taught. Sometimes he does it through the jarring words of a friend. Sometimes he does it in other ways, but he does it nonetheless. We will see that all here in this book. Look, I understand it's not always easy to be obedient. Look, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But it's not. But as we see and recognize the faithfulness and the faithfulness and of God, and we also then see in this book the faithlessness of the people. Think of Achan and Caleb. Contrasts. Achan, the one who refused to do what God told him to do at Jericho. Caleb, on the other hand, who served the Lord faithfully for forty year, for eighty years. Theme three. Not only do we see the faithfulness of God in this book and obedience of the people, we also see. Uh, paramount and most importantly we see christ we see him as a type of rest from hebrews chapter 4 we see him as a fulfillment of true rest when christ returns the church militant as we'll see in this book will become the church at rest the land we await is not that land we await another country the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down and where God dwells in the midst of his people for all eternity. We see in Joshua, we see Christ, and we see all that he fulfills for his church. All of this, these themes, and many more are present throughout the study, throughout the book of Joshua. So what can we learn from this overview and information about a book of 24 chapters. First, we can learn that the Christian life is often a siege. It's a battle. And if you don't recognize that, then you're, you know, you're probably doing something wrong. 
the weight of sin and the burden that it often brings and the struggle and the fight against the world, the flesh and the devil can be very real at times. But God has promised to always be with you. There it is again. He has promised. Do you believe him? I remember growing up as a boy, my mother would often say to her doubting oldest son, doubting a lot, doubting, doubting, doubting. I mean, I, must, I should have been named Thomas, not Bill. Doubting Thomas, doubting Bill. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, you know, really, the in-between, the I believe it really is irrelevant. God said it. That settles it. Whether you believe it or not doesn't change it. But as the redeemed people of the Lord, you should believe it. And so as you labor in this Christian life as a siege, as a battle, as you are called to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, always remember that it is God who is with you, and it is God that is fighting for you. If he just left you out there all by yourself, you'd get creamed. Second, the Christian life is a call to obedience. Martin Luther said it himself, the Christian life is a life of repentance. We are called to trust God and obey him. And we fall short, and we do. Look, we all do. From the strongest of pastors and elders to the weakest of saints in the church, we all fall short of the glory of God, and we cry out to him for help and be merciful to me, a sinner. More grace, O oh Lord, more grace to be obedient to you. It's really no, simpler, no more difficult than that. Third, the Christian life is a life of patience. As it looks forward to its heavenly rest. We're not there yet. All of us wish, and we say at the end of our worship services, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we would like to see that even this night, today. We're not home yet. We're not there. And so we're patiently waiting. What? Waiting for the promises. Waiting for the, that which the Lord has promised to do. We are waiting. We await the groom of the bride. We wait the better country we, where there is no more sorrow, no more pain, no more war, no more anguish, no more sin. We await our Joshua who has led us across the Jordan to our heavenly reward. We see the battle. We strive to be obedient by the help of God's Spirit out of joyful delight to Him. And we patiently wait for the Lord's return in which the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts will finally and completely forever and ever put to death sin in the battle. The church militant will become then the church at rest. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word again. We are grateful that you give to us these historical narratives that tell a true story of a true people but they talk about your church so plainly only you could have done this we pray as we work our way through this book that it would be a means by which we'd be strengthened and encouraged against the in the battle against the world the flesh and the devil that you administer to us in every way help your people help us lord in our times of weakness in the times of struggle that we would trust you, come what may, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.